my name is Will Duvall. I'm the associate pastor um, here at West Hills. I'm filling in for our senior pastor, Gary Brooks, who, um, as you just heard about, is finally back at home and resting, and so we're so grateful for that, and please do continue to keep him um, in your prayers. So, uh, Gary asked me to fill in this morning with a, a standalone message of sorts that could, that could kind of tee us up for our um, 50th anniversary celebration uh, that we've got coming up here in just two weeks now. Um, and so as I thought about it and thought about what to do with that and how to do that, um, I thought what better way for us to begin to prepare our hearts to celebrate together than to go kind of back to the beginning and uh, why we were founded and started as a church in the first place. And so that's going to be our question, driving question for this morning, uh, as you see in your bulletins there. Why? Really uh, deep and profound. Um, Anyone else have children uh, who are in the why phase right now? Any of you? As frustrating as it can be, uh, the plus side is you get really smart or knowledgeable at least, right? I don't know what um, you older parents did in the days before Siri and Alexa. I guess you just spent all your time in the card catalog section of the library um, looking things up. But um, why is it a a vitally important question for us to come back to and ask? As Mark Twain, theologian, said, uh, the two most important days in your life are the day you're born and the day you find out why. And that is certainly the case for those of us who are believers. Uh, The day we found our lives by giving them away to Christ is the most important day in our lives. And yet, for any organization or any institution like the church, uh, answering that question, why, must actually precede its birth, right? So you think about Steve Jobs. He asked the question, why not have a computer for people who aren't total nerds? And so Apple was born. Um, for Jeff Bezos asked the question, why get off my couch to shop? And Amazon was born. Mark Zuckerberg asked, why get off my couch to have a relationship? Facebook was born. And similarly, what we're going to see this morning is Jesus founded his church to answer a deep, profound why in the hearts of believers. Uh, Jesus himself was constantly answering that question. Throughout his life and his ministry, he lived his life with an intense intentionality and purpose. If we look together at Luke chapter 4, he says, uh, we hear the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But Jesus said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. So Jesus was crystal clear about his mission, about his purpose for being on this earth. And if we're not, then we run the risk of being distracted and drifting away, distracted by many good things. It was a good thing that Jesus was in Galilee healing their sick. He could have spent his whole life in ministry there in this little district, and yet Jesus knows the good is the enemy of the best. And so Jesus says, I'm sorry, but I've been sent here for a purpose. I've got to move on and get about my father's business. And so we hear him say in John 18, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. In John chapter nine, he said, I came into this world, why? That those who who do not see may see and those who do see may become blinded. In John chapter 12, 
He says, I've come not to judge the world, but to save the world. Luke 19, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Mark 10, the Son of Man did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 9, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. And John 10, I came that they might have life and life more abundantly. And just before the end of his life, Jesus prays to his Father in John chapter 17, I've glorified you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. I was here for a purpose, for a mission, and I'm about to complete it once and for all on the cross and in the empty tomb. And yet, notice the overarching reason that Jesus gives us for why he came. What is the ultimate reason for anything in life? His life, our life, anyone. Who's in the Faith Essentials uh, Sunday School class right now at 9 o'clock? Kevin and Steve and Taylor? Okay. Think back. Any kids in here with us, pulled up with parents, students from uh, uh, the New City Catechism class? Think back to last week, question four. Why did God create us? Good. Let's read it together. Isaiah 43. It's a shortened section of Isaiah 43. Thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I loved you. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created, why? For my glory whom I formed and made. God created us for his glory. Jesus came for God's glory. We are all here, whether we realize it or not, whether we are actively fulfilling it or not, that is why we're here. One singular purpose to bring God glory. Light and darkness, uh, planets and stars, skies and seas, birds and bees. That's why everything is here, is for God's glory. And that is why Isaiah 43 is our uh, overarching scripture passage for this morning. And yet, as we're gonna see This morning, it is also why the church is here, to glorify God. The church exists to glorify God. And specifically, what we're going to look at this morning is that we do that in four ways. Four ways. And again, we're coming back to this question of why. Why was the church founded in the first place? Why do we, West Hills, why do we exist as a church And so this message is going to be a bit more topical than most. Normally, we'd... All right, I believe in expository preaching here and exegeting text. This morning, in some ways, our church's founding mission statement is going to be the text that we are going to unpack together. But as we do, what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you from the Bible, from Scripture, all the support of why it is that God calls us to be and do this thing that we call church together. And so my hope and my prayer is that as we go through that this morning, we'll remind us all of exactly why it is that we do this thing called church. Sunday mornings, Tuesday night life groups, Friday night worship nights, Saturday afternoon service projects, all of it should be because of and to further our stated mission and reason for existing as a church. So before I actually give that to you, I want to quiz you or actually quiz us as leaders and how good of a job we've been doing as, at inculcating this in you. Why are we here? In the third blank in your bulletin now, you should have answered blanks one and two, why Jesus was here, uh, why, why you personally, individually, we as humanity are here to glorify God. Now we're on the third blank in your bulletin. Uh, hopefully there's a pen in the back of your, uh, your chair there, um, or you've got one in your purse. Um, why are you here right now? 
in this place, Sunday, why get up early to come here together, gather with God's people? What is this thing called church all about? Why are we here? Take a moment, if you would, uh, and, and answer that. I'll give you a moment to, to think and, and write out an answer there. It's all to glorify God, but we do that in four ways. What are they? Okay, anybody ready to share? You didn't know I was going to make you share. <laughs> Who wants to give, give it a shot? Worship God. Yeah. Worship, preaching, fellowship, prayer. Yeah, Deb. Good. Know him, love him, serve him. It's good. I like that. Anybody else? Follow his directions in life. Anybody else? Got anything different? Glorify God. How? By enjoying him forever. Good. Anybody else? What was that? Edification of the saints. Good. We've got a lot of pieces of it. All right, so let me share it with you uh, from our church, speaking of constitution, constitution from our, our website, our homepage. This is, this is why we exist. And um, everything you said is good. Everything you said is a part of, of, of our actual mission statement. But this is it. This is it. And this is, we should know this, we should um, commit this to heart, if not the full thing, at least the, these four component ways that we're going to discuss this morning. We are, at West Hills, a gospel-centered church who glorify God by living in authentic Christian community with one another, growing in spiritual maturity as disciples of Jesus, and serving the world missionally with the love of Christ. Write that down, if, and, and that fourth blank there underneath, so you can kind of grade yourself on how close you were. Uh, I'll, I'll read it again. We are a gospel-centered church who glorify God by living an authentic Christian community with one another, by growing in spiritual maturity as the disciples of Jesus, and by serving the world missionally with the love of Christ. Okay, let me uh, pray for us that we'll unpack each of these four ways that we glorify God together. Father, we thank you that you create us, design us with intentionality and with purpose, that our lives have meaning, and that you don't leave us in the dark to just try and discover on our own what that is, but you make it really clear in your word why we're here, to glorify you. And Father, as a church, as we come together collectively together this morning to think about our collective purpose, I pray that you would help us to understand, to realize, to appreciate, and to live into more and more uh, the purpose for which you have called us together. For your glory, Jesus. 
And it's in your name we pray, amen. Okay, the first component part of how we glorify God together there is by being gospel-grounded. Gospel-grounded. I've tried to make each of these into alliterations for you to make them more memorable. Again, I am going to ask you to memorize these. Gospel-grounded. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. It is the ground of everything that we are and do and believe and hope in and trust and rely on and bet our lives on and celebrate and long for together as a church. The question for this morning is, why? To quote the sermon title, why? Why is that the case? Why is the gospel the heart and soul not only of this church, but of every true church on earth? I'll give you four biblical reasons for each of these four component parts. Four reasons why the gospel is the ground. First, the gospel is the core of our ministry because it was the core of what Jesus taught. We already saw in Luke 4 where he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom, the gospel, for I was sent for this purpose. This is why he came, to proclaim the gospel. Elsewhere in Luke 4, Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me for this purpose, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus came to preach the, the good news of the kingdom. Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. Jesus came, why? To proclaim the gospel of God, saying, this is the gospel. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the gospel. What does that mean? We'll unpack it in a second. Jesus would teach about this kingdom of God some 85 times throughout the four gospels, more than every other topic that he discusses combined. If he is obsessed with that gospel, with that kingdom of God, the good news, then we should be too. Secondly, Jesus not only taught about the gospel, he lived it out. He, he, he fulfilled it. He accomplished it in, his, in who he was and what he did. When he wasn't teaching, he was fulfilling. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He fed the hungry, casted out the demons, set people free. All the things he just listed in Luke 4. Ridding this world of the kingdom of hell and Satan that we invited in by our sin in Genesis 3 and restoring it back to the kingdom that Jesus and God had originally intended it to be when they created the world. That is the good news, according to Jesus, that God's promised kingdom, his rule and his reign in and amongst his people has now actually come to earth in a fundamentally new way in the person of Jesus. He says, it's at hand in Mark, four, in, in Mark 1 there. It's at hand. Some translations say it's in your midst. The Greek reads like it's, it's right in front of you. It's staring you in the face. It's me, your long-awaited king. I am the good news. And in his death and resurrection, Jesus would inaugurate God's kingdom on earth in the most transformative and eternal way of all because now his kingdom isn't just something external that we experience as onlookers watching Jesus do some pretty cool stuff. Now, scripture tells us that the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is at work inside us. So Jesus said, you'll actually do greater things than I did. That's a crazy statement, John 14, 12. But because the kingdom is something that we experience personally, internally, in our hearts, as God's reign breaks out in our hearts through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, we experience his kingdom in our midst, right in front of us, inside of us. Number three, the gospel is the core of our ministry because it is what makes the church the church. The gospel is our DNA. It is what 
uh, holds us together. The gospel is the church's identity. John 3, 3 says, unless we are born again, we cannot see the kingdom of God. New birth, given a new spiritual DNA in Christ. That is what makes a Christian a Christian. Augustine, the fifth century church father, talked about how in any church, the visible church, there are actually two groups of people. So amongst this group of some 220, 25 people known as West Hills, there's actually two groups of people from God's perspective. There is the actual church, those who have been born again by faith in Christ, And then there are those who are playing church who come and gather with us anyways, but who have not yet been born again. And and from our perspective, we we can't that's for God to discern the difference between those two. It's between you and God. For us, we're glad you're here anyways. We love everyone regardless. We thank God that we get the opportunity to minister to and with even people who don't know him yet and actually see them come to faith over the years through hopefully they're, 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 they're sitting under our teaching and preaching here at West Hills. And yet it's important at the same time to recognize that distinction. There's two groups of people, and, and only those of us who, as we sang just a moment ago, whose names are written on his heart, whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, who have been born again, however you want to put it biblically, constitute the actual spiritual church. And so the gospel gives us that new identity in God's family. Why? Well, because number four, the gospel is the power of salvation. Romans 1.16. See, here's the thing. <clears throat> every worldview and every religion posits a different central problem that it seeks to solve. In Buddhism, the problem is our suffering and the solution is non-attachment. In Hinduism, the problem is ignorance and the solution is enlightenment. In Darwinian materialism, the problem is death, and there isn't a solution, so enjoy this short life as much as you can. Jesus, on the other hand, says our most fundamental problem is sin, which leads to that death, and the only solution is salvation alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the gospel. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. The gospel, John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, what, believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's the gospel. It calls us into this new identity. And if that is truly our condition, sinful, fallen, unworthy, and if that is truly what Christ has done for us while we were yet sinners, he died in our place to reconcile us back to the Father then how could anything else be the center but that news? That news of the gospel and who Jesus is and what he's done for us, that will always be the center of everything for the Christian. Everything else will be centered on it, grounded in it, revolving around that truth, who Jesus is and what he's done. That is everything to us. And yet, as we're going to see, there's some, there's some circles that branch out from that, that, that Christ calls us into that flow out of that commitment to the gospel. So the second way that we glorify God together as a church is by being community committed. Now you're going to have to change your bulletin for me because I know I put centered in there, but then I realized it's kind of confusing because I just said we're gospel centered, right? So the gospel is the center literally in the diagram. So um, scratch that out. Uh, I had to rush these to print. Uh, because I'm filling in short notice. So um, scratch out uh, centered and write in committed, community committed. Our secondary commitment to community flows out of our primary centeredness on the gospel. How so? 
How is it that the gospel calls us into community with one another? This is really important for us to get straight because there's lots of people out there who fancy themselves, called, claim that label Christian, but who say, you know, I don't really consider myself to be any part of a church or a denomination, and maybe they frankly don't have really anything to do, don't affiliate with other believers in any noticeable kind of way at all. These lone, lone ranger Christians. But I believe Jesus is my Lord and Savior. That's all that's really important, right? What's wrong with that line of thinking and that line of practicing so-called Christian faith? I'll give you four reasons, four more reasons why community is a non-negotiable for the Christian. Number one, God created us for it. I need help again from the Faith Essentials, New City Catechism people. Last week, we, we talked about why God created us. Now let's do the other question. How did God create us? How? In his image. Good. Teachers paying attention. In his image. Genesis 1, 26. But that pronoun is misleading. Because what does God himself actually say in Genesis 1, 26? Let us make man in our image. But we don't say God created us in their image because we're nervous about polytheism. But in some ways, that would be more true to Scripture and what God actually says in the text, right? We learn in that one phrase three, the three most fundamental things about what it means to be human. Number one, God created us. Let us make man. We are not happy accidents. We are the purposeful designs of a personal creator God. Number two, we are created in God's image. Let us make man in our image. We are created to image, to mirror, to model, reflect God's nature and character to the world around us, to be like him uniquely amongst all creation. We alone are moral creatures, spiritual creatures, soul-filled creatures, creative, intelligent, all the list goes on. But of all the list, one of the most basic things about what it means to be human because one of the most intrinsic Things about what makes God God, his own nature, is number three. We are created for community. Let us make man in our image. In fact, you can go back and reread Genesis 1. You won't find that plural pronoun until verse 26 when God creates man. God the Father creates the heavens and the earth. He makes the light, he makes the sky, he makes waters, he creates plants, animals, and then we come to verse 26, comes time to create humans, and it's, it's like God says, hold up, we all need to get in on this one. Because he's special. He's gonna be our image bearer, unique in all of creation. And so this is a communal creative work, endeavor, community, relationship, and that is the first thing in all of Scripture that God says is not good as well in chapter 2. Before we even get to the fall, what's the first thing that God says is not good in creation? For him to be alone, Genesis 2.18. So you're welcome, ladies. You can be glad that we guys get lonely without you. That's why you were made. Made for relationship. We were both made for relationship. <clears throat> and I don't care how introverted you are, I'm an introvert, you will shrivel up and die outside of relationship. Almost literally. Almost. Right, we, obviously, socially you do. Psychologically, you go crazy, solitary confinement. But look at the research. The number one predictor 
of lifelong longevity is what? Diet? Nope. Exercise? Nope. What is it? It's your relationships. Social connectivity is what the research calls it. We were designed for it, and we die without it. Number two, Jesus modeled and expected community and relationship for us. As Christians, we pattern our lives after Jesus, and how did Jesus live his life? He lived it in community with others, 12 dudes, 24-7, so close that he called them his family in front of his biological family, Matthew 12. And not only does Jesus model it for us, but he makes it clear that he expects it to be true of his true followers as well. Matthew 18, 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, what? There I am with them. There's something unique and fundamentally different about when believers come together. Yeah, we've all got the Holy Spirit in our hearts individually, but we come together and there's something different. Matthew 22, teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. And second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Think about that for a moment with me. The guy asked him for the single greatest commandment, right? What else could be even on par, could, could even be in the same realm of conversation as loving God? Apparently for Jesus... Loving each other is such a close number two that it demands being listed as an honorable mention. Why? Well, pulling some analogies this morning, without having multiple children myself, I can only hypothesize that as much as I love Ellery, my daughter, nothing will bring me greater joy than watching her future younger siblings, who I will also love, appreciate her, and love her that much too, to watch them share love between them. John 13, 34, and 35 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So it's not just his commandment. It's the best evangelism strategy too. You can go on all the missions trips you want, pray for your lost loved ones, but the best way, most effective way to reflect God's love to the unbelieving world, according to Jesus, is to love and do life with a bunch of people who, frankly, outside of the gospel that unites us, we have no reason being together, right? I mean, I I would just be completely honest with y'all. I have so little in common with some of y'all that I walk away from some conversations just laughing. Like, God, only you could could make me spiritual family with, with him, with her, I mean, we had nothing outside of the gospel, and yet, that's exactly what he does, right? Because the gospel is the strongest glue there is. And the more different we are, and yet the more united we are in spite of it, the greater our witness is to the outside world of the power and the strength of the gospel. The more glory God gets from that. And lastly, at the end of his life, Jesus' final prayer in John 17 is what? I ask also for those who will believe in me that they may all be one, just as you, Father, and I are one. Uh, uh, Me and I and you. Jesus prays uh, that his church would be united together as he is with the Father. The Trinity is Jesus' analogy for how unified we should be. High bar? That's how how God calls us in in the kind of relationship he desires. But he he wants nothing less for us. 
He wants us to be that unified around the gospel cause. Number three, community is necessary for preaching all, uh, sorry, practicing all of the one another commandments of the New Testament. So I'm going to fly through these. Jesus' command to love one another is just the tip of the iceberg as far as what the New Testament calls us to be and do for one another. Here is just a shorter abridged list. See if you can scribble all these notes out as we go. Mark 9, be at peace with each other. John 13, wash one another's feet. John 13, love one another. We just looked at that one. Romans 13, love one another. Romans 12, be devoted to one another. Honor one another. Live in harmony with one another. Romans 14, stop passing judgment on one another. Accept one another, instruct one another, greet one another with a holy kiss. When you come together to eat, wait for each other, have equal concern for each other, serve one another in love, carry each other's burdens, don't bite and devour each other, don't provoke and envy each other, be patient, bearing with one another, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgive one another, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, submit to one another, consider one another better than yourselves, do not lie to each other, bear with each other, forgive one another, teach one another, admonish one another, make your love overflow for each other, encourage one another, build each other up, encourage one another daily, spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Do not slander one another, don't grumble against each other, confess your sins to each other, pray for each other, love one another deeply from the heart, live in harmony with one another, greet one another, offer hospitality to one another, serve one another, clothe yourselves in humility towards one another and love one another. I thought about trying to do it in one breath, but I, y'all would have had to carry me off in a stretcher. The 44 one another's in the New Testament, and friends, we can't single a, follow a single one of those alone. Every single one of them demands, requires, that we live in community with fellow believers. So can you be a lone, lone ranger Christian? I mean, not without breaking a whole lot of commands in God's word intentionally, consciously, knowingly. Number four, lastly, there is the practical fact why we live in community that you personally need it, we as a church need it, and the world needs the witness of community. So I've run out of my time on, on the community one. If we pass the mic around the room, though, I bet every single one of you could share a story of a time that you desperately needed a helping hand, a big favor, a listening ear, a shoulder to cry on, a word of encouragement, a word of rebuke, advice from, uh, on a personal problem. You needed something, financial help. You needed something from someone, and your Christian community came through for you. And hopefully, you could also share a story where you were able to do that and come through for someone else. We need each other, practically, desperately sometimes. We need each other. We've got to be able to count on each other. And the world desperately needs to see us coming through for one another because they don't have that. The world doesn't have a paradigm for this. The world has, I scratch you, your back, you scratch mine. The world has, I take care of you out of obligation to pay you back or to store up relational credit for when I need to make a withdrawal, when I need a helping hand later. But we love selflessly, without motive, without giving out IOUs. Because that's how Jesus loved. That is our witness to the unbelieving world and to one another. The third way that we glorify God as a church is by being discipleship driven. 
in our mission statement, by growing in spiritual maturity as disciples of Christ. Why does this bring God glory? Four reasons. Number one, because imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. I asked Ellery the other day, baby, what do you want to be when you grow up? She said, I want to be a pastor like daddy. So we're going to have to have that conversation one day if, if it comes to that. But, but I mean, gosh, talking about bringing tears to my eyes. What could make me more proud, bring me more joy as a father? And friends, that is how our Heavenly Father feels when we prioritize our growth in spiritual maturity, becoming more like Jesus. Father, I just want to be more like you. Number two, it's how we obey God's word. God actually commands it. Matthew 5, you're the light of the world, so let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The more we grow in our knowledge and love of him, the more light we produce, the more opportunity we give others to see him at work in us and to give God glory. Ephesians 4, Build up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children. Rather, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ who makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Build up, attain to maturity, don't be children, grow up. These are imperative verbs. It makes me a proud father to watch Ellery use the potty all by herself, to drop her off at school. She can go to school by herself, feed herself at lunch now. I'm proud of her maturity. So too our Heavenly Father gets glory from us growing up, becoming more into the people that he's created us to be. Number three, it's how we follow Jesus' own example and teaching. This is how we follow Jesus' example. Luke 2 says, And the child Jesus grew up and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Even Jesus had to grow up. And so if, if our calling is to be like him, to follow in our rabbi's footsteps, then we too must grow up. Consider that great commandment he gave us again, love God and love neighbor. If that is how we glorify God and keep his commands, then it stands to reason that the more we do love him and love others, the more glory we are bringing him. And what is discipleship after all, if not growing in our capacity and our understanding and our consistency and faithfulness to love and serve God and others? That's what discipleship is. That's the essence, because that's the essence of who Jesus is. And what he did while he was here. And so the more we are discipled, the closer followers of him we are, the better followers of his commands we are too, and the more pleasure and glory we bring the Father. Think of his great commission. Matthew 28, go and make disciples. His final injunction before leaving earth. It's pretty important stuff. But it starts with me. Before I go make a disciple of anyone else, I've got to make a disciple of myself, Right? I've got to, or better, allow myself to be discipled by him. And then lastly, number four, of why, why we are discipleship-driven, it's because it's, that's how we attain life to the fullest, John 10. John 10, 10. It's how we attain life to the fullest. Remember, that's why Jesus said he came in the first place. 
Life to the fullest for you and me, now and in eternity. Life abundant starts here on earth by growing in our Christ-likeness. I love that quote by the second century uh, early church father Irenaeus who said, the glory of God is man fully alive. It brings me glory to watch my daughter dance like crazy. It brings me glory to watch her laugh and run around and play, to watch her come fully alive. So friends, what, what could bring God more glory and what could make us come more fully alive than being transformed by degree and degree, as Paul tells us, slowly over time, more into the image and likeness of Christ, our sanctification. That's it. That's how we glorify God. And the fourth way that we glorify God, final way, is by being missions motivated. So you've got to change your bulletin one more time. Again, I apologize. Quick to print these. But as, as I was sitting down to flesh out my outline more, the more I sat with it and thought with it, the more truthfully I hated that phrase, mission-minded. I'm kind of glad I put it in there because it gives me an, an opportunity to address it now. <laughs> but I hated that phrase, mission-minded. Because if I'm honest, I don't question our mission-mindedness at West Hills. I don't question the mission-mindedness of the evangelical church in 21st century America at all. I don't think we suffer from a lack of a mind for partnering with God who is on mission in the world. When we sent out our church-wide survey about life groups eight months ago, the number one thing everyone put that they'd like to see us do more of together was serve beyond mission. The focus group that took the NCD survey four months ago, everyone said they wanted West Hills to be a church known for its commitment to missions. We are plenty missions minded. The question is, are we missions motivated? Are we missions moved? Motivated enough to move out of our comfort zones, roll up our sleeves, and get our hands dirty. I'm so glad that the Mashburns are here this morning. I'm so glad they showed you that video. I should probably just shut up right now and re-show the video again. Because truthfully, someone, someone should get motivated, moved this morning by those, those, those aren't stats. They're not stats for you, are they? You see faces when you see those numbers of unreached people groups, unreached people, I mean, that should move us. And don't mishear me. There are, there's tons that we can and should celebrate together. We support 12 missionaries in 10 different countries as a church who are spreading the gospel and healing the sick. Some of you serve weekly outside the walls of our church. We finally got about half of our life groups now who are committed to regularly serving with some outside organization together as a life group. Praise the Lord. This is exciting stuff. God is doing great things in the lives of his people at West Hills. And yet, the question for us this morning is, could we do more? Some of you are nodding. <laughs> All of you should be. Yes. I hope this doesn't feel like it comes from a place of, of legalism or obligation. For me, it comes from a holy discontent. We can do more. We should want to do more, and here are four reasons why. Four reasons why we serve the world missionally with the love of Christ. Number one, because God loves the world and we should too. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Can you fathom, can you fathom loving 
estranged sinners that much. I cannot. I, I, I think I've used this analogy before, but I'll do it again. Um, to be brutally honest, I would not give my daughter Ellery's life for any one of you. I'll just be honest. If, if that offends you, I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. I, I wouldn't give her life for any. In fact, I wouldn't give her life for, for all of you. If my wife stepped out of the room, uh, then I think I could say this. I wouldn't give my life for all of you. I mean, gun to my head, you've got you've to pick your, your only child or all of West Hills. I'd say, say hey to Jesus for me. I will see y'all in heaven. Right? I, and maybe that makes me a bad pastor. Maybe that makes me selfish. Maybe that makes me not a, a close enough follower of Jesus. Maybe I should be willing to, to do that for y'all. But I just tell you, I'm not there yet. I'm not that sanctified. She is my only child. That is how much God loves us. He did that for us. And so what is our response? 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. We serve the world missionally with the love of Christ. That means meeting physical needs, packing meals to send to starving kids overseas like we did yesterday. It means packing boxes for Operation Christmas Child as we're prepping to do here in, in the coming month. But because Jesus met physical needs, that's what we do. But, but because Jesus says the more difficult and more pressing need is the spiritual need, first and foremost for us, it's always in the service of meeting spiritual needs. What does Jesus say? Matthew 9, before he ever bothers with the paralysis of the guy on the mat, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. That's primary. It's first. Then afterwards, he's like, oh, you want me to meet his physical needs too? Okay, if, if, if that's what you need to, to be proven that, that I am who I say I am and I do what I say I do, but the more pressing, urgent need is the spiritual. And if you want to know how important this final and fourth facet of our mission statement is to God, consider this analogy. I'll, I'll stick with it. If my daughter, Ellery, was hanging off the side of a cliff, what do you think the best way you could love me would be? Her father. I mean, sure, sing me all the songs you want. Spend as much quiet time with me as you want. But if you're not concerned with my child who's dangling over the precipice of the cliff, at a certain point in time, I'm just going to start to wonder, do you really know me? And do you really, do you really have a heart that's, that beats after my heart? These are my children who I love. I desire that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Loving someone means caring about the things they care about. And what does God care about more than the salvation of the lost? Two, two billion. Two billion who've never even heard his name. That should motivate us, move us. Number two, we follow Jesus by serving and loving like he did. We need look no further than the missional statements of Jesus. We've already previewed John 9, I came into this world that those who do not see may see. John 12, I came to save the world. Luke 19, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Mark 10, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. I came for sinners. I came that they might have life and life more abundant. Yes, we follow Jesus when we love one another in community. Yes, 
We follow Jesus when we grow in our Christ-likeness through discipleship. But what is more Christ-like than loving and serving the world missionally? That's how we do it. That is our discipleship. That's why in the Venn diagram that I worked on so long for y'all, um, can we throw that up? I've worked on that a lot. That, that's why there's overlap in all of the circles, right? They all overlap because you cannot be discipled and grow in your faith without loving and serving caring for the lost and the broken. That is precisely how we do it. These all go hand in hand. Number three, serving and loving missionally is why Jesus has left us on earth. We've covered this before. Remind you, it's why we're here right now. It's why Jesus left when you confessed and repented, turned to him, confessed with your mouth, believed in your heart for the first moment Five years ago, 50 years ago, it's why you didn't get sucked up into heaven. Why? If we could truly glorify God primarily by singing praise and worship songs, we would all already be in heaven together right now, wouldn't we? I mean, any of y'all that were here on Friday night for the worship night know my voice is going to sound a lot better on the other side of eternity. If that's, I've got a bad voice, that was a joke. If that's, if that's why... We, we were here just to, to get around. I'm not saying let's cut out worship from what we do together. I'm not saying don't sing. I'm just saying if that was primary, right, we would already be in heaven. What is the one thing that we cannot do when we're in heaven? Gospel-centered ministry to a broken world. Preaching the good news. Living out the good news in our actions. Why? Because there won't be any unbelievers to hear the good news. There won't be any hurts or wounds or poverty or sickness to heal or mend or fix. So Paul exhorts us to make the most of your time because the days are evil. There is real evil, physical evil, spiritual evil in our midst. There won't be in heaven. And the reason Jesus left us here in the mess of it is to be ambassadors of light in a dark world. So glad you guys are here. Just, I, I, we didn't even plan this this way. It's just God's timing. God, Jesus was hyper-focused with his parting words to us before his ascension. He didn't say, I'm going back to heaven now, so love one another. Jesus didn't say, I'm going back to heaven now, so follow all my commands. What did he say? Going back to heaven, so go therefore and make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. He says, go into the world, Mark 16, and proclaim the gospel to all the creation. Pay it forward, advance the kingdom, push back the darkness, gain ground. We've got a limited time on this earth to do it. Play your part, get after it. Two billion people, ready, set, go. That's why we're here. Lastly, number four, we are missions motivated because we remember what it was like. Do you remember what it was like? Just, just give you a minute. Close your eyes right now as we sort of start to conclude. Can you remember what your life was like in your testimony before you came to faith in Christ? What it felt like? The darkness, the emptiness, the meaninglessness, Hopelessness. There are two billion people who haven't even had a shot at it. And there's however many more billion who feel that right now. 
Some of them have stuffed it enough that it's not you know, always right there, but it's there. Because we know that Christ is our only hope in life and in death. The only thing that can fill us. God-shaped heart in our holes, a hole in our hearts. And so friends, remember that. Remember that feeling and let that motivate you. I don't want my lost loved ones to feel that. I don't want the people of Senegal to feel that. Let's get after it. Gospel, community, discipleship, missions. That's why we're here. This is what it means to be the church. This is what it means to glorify God by being grounded in the gospel, the foundation of our commitment to community, discipleship-driven, missions-motivated. So the next time I quiz you, or better yet, the next time one of your friends asks you, why do you bother getting up early on Sunday mornings, what are you going to say? Gospel grounded, community committed, discipleship driven, missions motivated. Got it? All right. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your church. Jesus, I thank you as our denominations rally cry goes, we are better together. That as good as your good news is, that for any who would turn to you in faith, we can be saved and be with you in eternity, that the good news is even better than that, that you call us into community with one another, that you give us the ability to actually grow in that identity and grow closer to you and live life to the fullest as we're discipled. And that you give us a reason and a purpose for leaving us here on earth, missions, to serve and love the world that you came to serve and love so well. Father, I pray this morning you would motivate us, you would recenter us, you would call us back to our purpose answer to the big question why that we would leave here feeling motivated driven, compelled to be who you've created us to be and thankful for the work that you've already done in our lives individually and collectively as a church and for the work that you're going to continue to do in the life of this church West Hills as we continue to seek your face chase after your righteousness and follow you for your glory and our good. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.